Welcome to Silvercast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Brad Hutnick. And I'm Greg Edge. We're both silviculturists with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources and your host for today's show. Brad, I got to tell you something. You're a goat. Wait, wait, wait. You think I'm the goat? I'm, I'm the greatest of all time? I, I, I don't even know what to say. I, God, Greg, I really appreciate that. Brad, Brad, the greatest of all time. Wow, yeah, that that hits me right here. I, I'm really touched, Greg. Brad, now, you, would, would you mind if I called Andy, our supervisor? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I, no. he might. I think he'd like to get on in this. Um, Brad, you misunderstood. I said you're a goat, <laughs> not a G O A T. Oh, oh, hey. What do you mean, goat? Well, it's no secret that you eat almost anything. Well, all right, Greg. I- I'm not as prissy as you are okay. about what I'll eat. Case, but, I mean, okay, case in point. Last week, we're out in the woods walking yep. uh, a logging road. And remember the apple? There was an apple. Yeah, I think it was a Honeycrisp. Yeah, and you ate it. But the problem being was this apple was just sitting in a muddy rut of a logging road in the middle of an aspen harvest. Uh, well, okay, so you've got a more delicate constitution than I do. Uh, but in my defense, I wiped it on my shirt first, Greg, so it's an apple. You didn't know where that apple had been. So uh, well, I'm just saying, All right, you're a goat. In any event, Brad, it turns out that you are not the only goat in the woods these days. More and more, land managers are exploring new and innovative ways to control interfering vegetation. And that could be drones, it could be new herbicides, equipment, you name it. Managers are getting innovative. And today, our guests are Greg Hack and Brooke Hushagen of Hackhagen Goat Grazing. And they have embraced innovation in terms of using goats as a silvicultural tool. Nice. This should be a great conversation. But before we get to that, just a quick reminder that the end of the year is approaching. If you still need continuing education credits, remember to check out the Silvacast website to learn how to get credits just for listening to Silvacast. Today's episode of Silvacast is brought to you by the Nelson Paint Company. Since 1940, Foresters all over North America have relied on Nelson Paint for tree marking solutions. Nelson Paint manufactures paint designed to withstand the harshest weather conditions in the field, and the Nelspot tree guns have lasted the test of time. Visit nelsonpaint.com to learn more about their products. Greg and Brooke, welcome to Silvacast. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Well, my name is Brooke Hushagen, and um, I my real job is I work in forest management for Wisconsin DNR, and um, I have a husband and three children, three girls, and um, a goat herd, which you'll hear more about <laughs> yeah. as, we, as we move on. Uh, and my name is Greg Hack. For my real job, I work for the Wisconsin DNR. I work at the state game farm where we raise pheasants for public hunting. I also have a wife and two children, a son and a daughter. Yeah, it's a little bit about me. I like the idea, family plus goats. 
which we don't hear too often. So that's good stuff. Yeah. And, and I don't have any goats. So I guess my next question is, how did you both get interested in goats? Well, for me, I grew up on a dairy farm and it was the winter of 2015. I was home sick from work about the only days I've ever missed in my entire career. And I was thinking, you know, I really want to have animals again and not cows because cows are big and you can't move them. And I don't want to milk them every day. And I don't know, we're just talking at break, Brooke and I, and kind of got the ball rolling about goats and doing a goat grazing business and kind of just stemmed from there, I guess. Yeah, kind of like the classic lunch break conversation. I had a, I had picked up a couple of goats in, let's see, probably 2012, I think it was. Just a couple of pet goats for the family. And um, my husband and, and I have a, a little small acreage in Poinette, which was overrun with buckthorn. So we're like, hey, goats are cute. They're good pets. And we can use them, hopefully, to do some land management. I'd heard a little bit about that. So, um, yeah, lunch break talk turned into... Uh, having a couple goats and and we thought it was a pretty cool idea and we thought we'd give it a go. Greg, that, that kind of uh, reminds me of us talking about Silvacast, but I think our version would involve alcohol. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, we won't go there, Brad. So, you know, for you two, we, we have kind of a, I don't know, we always do it on our, our episodes and I'm always curious about this stuff, but, but you're both in natural resources and forestry and what was the what was the thing that got you into into what you're doing right now uh, with the DNR and with goats? Well, uh, I suppose I've always had a love for outdoors and animals. And like Greg, I also grew up on a dairy farm um, and realized that cows are a lot more work than goats. Um, we we raise meat goats, I guess. So as opposed to dairy goats, so we're not milking our goats. They're they're strictly for grazing and and that. Um, but uh, just got into uh, a career where I could be outside a lot and then kind of drew in always loving to be around animals and animal husbandry and things like that. And, and goats are, you know, smaller livestock and fun and cute and, and all those things. So yeah, it was a good kind of marriage between the natural resources management and animal husbandry. Yeah. And I would say, a lot of the same things for me. Just I got my DNR job once I graduated college, where kind of went from dairy farming to pheasant farming. So it was a slight transition, and then you know enjoy having animals and having our own goats, and you know building our herd from there has been fun. So I have to admit. So as we start this conversation about goats. I know absolutely nothing about goats. I mean, I've read in preparation for this, but but I have to admit, like, I haven't seen goats in the woods. And so this is really, like, I'm learning a lot, just kind of getting ready and, 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 uh, and thinking about this. And I think some of our listeners might be in the same boat. You know, they've only heard about goats and things like this. So, so what is uh, managed goat grazing or managed grazing with goats for, for forest management? So what we do is we'll have the targeted area we'll set up a fence around it with electric netting and usually we have a herd of about 40 to 50 goats in a group and we'll let them in there they can eat an acre in a couple days they can eat an acre in a week just depends how thick the vegetation is the goal is to defoliate the trees and 
herbaceous stuff in the pen where it has to use reserves from the ground to, you know, make new leaves and stress the plant out. So with goats, it's repetitive. It's not a one time the goats are going to come in, eat everything down like beavers to the ground and it's not going to grow back. It's going to grow back in four to six weeks. And usually we like to hit stuff two to three times in a summer to really stress it out. And sometimes it takes a couple of years, you know, it's all dependent on the site. Sometimes it's, you know, there's not an exact, it's not three years or five years or two years. It's, you just got to keep after it and, until it's gone. And usually when it grows back, it grows back less than the first time. So the first graze might be a week. Second graze is usually three to four days. And if you do a third graze, it's only a day or two. That's just how it's worked for us. Yeah. And it's a lot like um, other types of land management too. It's really uh, landowner objectives based. You know, some people are hiring us simply to clear a lot. And um, they said, we want to see what's underneath there. It's just been raspberries and brambles for years. And they wanted to clear it for building a shed. We had some clients that wanted to do that. Some people simply don't want to use herbicides on their properties. So they just want to use the goats. And um, I know we talk about in the forestry world a lot. It's, it's just another tool in the toolbox. It's not necessarily a magic wand, but um, it can be used in combination with lots of other tools too. Greg, you went a little bit into that process and I'm like Brad, I have seen um, goat grazing done on some of our managed lands, but I don't know much about it. And I'm just curious, as you were describing that process, are those goats rotated through that site? So you, you said you put them in a pen on that site and then do you give them so much, so many acres? And then is that moved around the site over that summer you're describing? Yep. So it depends on the size. We've fenced up to six acres at a time. If it's pretty thin, um, it's kind of our pen size is based on time and how much available brush is in there. If it's super thick, we'll shrink it down a little bit so you can, we don't like to have pens for more than probably 10 days to two weeks at a time. You try getting it down to a week you know, because we're trying to balance our real jobs and family. So you try to set it up. So, okay, if we set them up here, they should be good for a week. And then we have to go move them again is kind of what we target about that size. So it varies from, it could be an acre, it could be three acres. So it's all dependent on a lot of factors. It's also dependent on, you know, if we've grazed an area before, then the second time going in there too, it's a lot more thinner and, and reduced to, and then over time, repetitive years as well, you know, we can continue to make the, the paddocks bigger to, to meet the same goals, but the timing changes. So it's not like a certain number of goats per acre. It really is dependent on a lot of these factors, like the available browse that's on the site and, and so on. For sure. And you could go a lot more goats. If you wanted to move goats every day, you could put a hundred on an acre, you know, people, People are moving animals with cattle every 12 hours or 24 hours to have a set time that they move cattle through. They'll even put 250 cows on an acre or whatever to have it done in four hours. And then they move them once it gets to a certain height. Hmm. But for us, once it's defoliated, we move them. Mm -hmm. We don't move them as fast as that just for the fact that we don't have that time on our hands. 
Yeah, like Greg alluded to, our, our kind of our catchphrase is 40 to 50 goats fit comfortably on our trailer at a time. So yeah. that's yeah. You know, what we're moving around <laughs> and balancing, like you said, our, 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 real li- our real lives and our home lives with that too. Right, like just a lot of logistics involved. Yeah, Absolutely. I think the word logistics comes up a lot when we talk about this. It's, <laughs> it's, it's key figuring that out, the, the right. proper timing. So, Well, I'm curious about just the the goats themselves and what they'll eat because there are so many things in the woods. Is there things they won't eat or they, they eat everything? Um, so they usually won't eat nettles unless they're at a certain stage, they'll eat them. Like if they're more young and tender, they'll eat them. But if they're pretty tall, they usually don't touch them. Um, May apples, Jack in the pulpit, they don't touch that. There's probably a few more things I'm not thinking of. Yeah, just maybe some things we haven't even identified, too, that they'll just leave behind. A lot of ornamental stuff in the woods, like if people in the park specifically, there's uh, residents that bought up to the parks that we've grazed and some ornamental stuff has gotten away from the, the houses and they usually don't touch the ground cover. Hmm. So, yeah, things like vinca, they don't like vinca. Huh. Um, and then some other, yeah, like Greg said, some some stuff you'd see in maybe like containerized uh, pots that mm. people like hanging baskets and stuff. We've seen yeah. lots of that creeping from people's backyards and the goats, it, it ends up as a ground cover and the goats don't like that either. So Yeah, we haven't been too picky. Um, I mean, we walk through the site when we look at it and when we set up the fence, but we're not, like we don't look through every plant. So if there's something in there that they're probably not supposed to eat, we've been the goats seem to know what's going on. So, cause they go through the whole area and if they don't like something or they can't eat it, they generally don't. They're a lot smarter than we are. So <laughs> yeah. what are the species that most landowners are trying to target with the goats? Is there, especially from a forest management standpoint? Um, mainly buckthorn, honeysuckle are probably the two biggest ones. People want poison ivy too. They have a lot of calls about that. But I would definitely say buckthorn and honeysuckle are probably at the top of the list. And so they're they're defoliating those. Are they also eating some of the branches off of that or the stem on them? They'll eat the very the tender ends of them. So tender. sort of prune them a bit. So eat yeah. the ends back. And if left in the pen, maybe a, an extra half a day or so, they will they will girdle some of those things too. Um, we try not to push them that hard per se. So where they're eating the bark off of things, but um, it, it does happen occasionally. And I suppose there's a limitation, like how high, like, so we've been in woods, you know, where the, the buckthorn or honeysuckle will be 10, 15 feet tall. How high can they actually get in that stuff to, to get at it? Uh, usually about six or seven feet, unless you get the really spindly, like one inch diameter buckthorn that's nine or 10 foot tall. They'll work together and push it over and get it. Oh. But generally six to seven feet is probably the average. Yeah, that's that's some of the most fun parts of grazing is watching them work together to tip something over and then they just kind of flock together and, <laughs> and swarm it and defoliate it. Once they get down to the to the end of their pens, that's kind of the classic classic technique is work together to get the leaves they couldn't reach individually. Wow. I like it. Teamwork. All right. And I suppose that the catch 22 then is if you have some good stuff mixed in, like say you had some good regeneration mixed into that, they're going to eat that too, right? Yeah. You would need to protect anything that you'd want to save. 
most of our sites we're working on, I'd say, are already so far infested that we're we're kind of starting a redo on the sites. It sounds like, well, just like anything in forest management, some assessment is necessary in terms of what type of sites they will have the most impact on. And I think, Brooke, you just mentioned, maybe you're focusing oftentimes on degraded sites. So are there particular sites or site characteristics that you're working with that goats would be most appropriate for? Yes, like kind of like I alluded to something that's already, you know, well infested to kind of start over. Um, grazing actually does a good job. Like, like Greg said, they can reach six to seven feet on their hind feet. So then they're getting that browse line. And then that makes great access for humans to get in there with chainsaws, brush saws, if you're going to use herbicides. And that's part of the whole process. I know on my own property, that's what we did. We grazed the goats first and then it had that nice browse line. Then we went in with chainsaws, herbicides, and um, some of our other clients are doing that too. And then piling those up and perhaps burning them in the winter. And then any re-sprouts would be, you know, the next year's awesome browse for the goats if, if they weren't using herbicides, things like that. I would imagine, you know, thinking too, Greg, about, or and maybe asking you guys that it seems like they would be a natural fit for maybe some of these steeper sites too, that we can't get other equipment onto. Oh, for sure. Cause um, it's not too bad to set up the fence and the goats can scale the hills or the valleys or all the places you couldn't get equipment. You know, we've grazed along some of the lake shores in Madison that are pretty steep mm-hmm. and we just fence the goats in and they do their jobs and we pull them out. So, so we've been kind of circling, uh, Greg, here's my Seinfeld reference. So we're, we're looking at our goat worthy sites. Are there, are there watchouts maybe where you guys would say, Oh, maybe this isn't a good thing. Like, is there anything poisonous to them or and places you go? No, we're not going to put goats in here. So you would probably the worst, I would say the ornamental evergreen you. Yeah. Not you specifically. (laughs) (laughs) But, well, I could be the worst, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> they, they also say that burdock is poisonous to goats or toxic, but our goats just eat it down to the ground and have no issues. So We've also been warned about pokeweed, but our goats will eat it. So with no ill effects that, that we've noticed. So hmm. it's kind of like moderation. Maybe they, they dilution is the solution to pollution. Maybe they'll eat yeah. a little bit of it and... If it upsets their stomach, maybe they'll stop eating it. And if it doesn't upset them on the next day, and it probably has something to do with, you know, the way the plants, you know, their, their makeup throughout the summertime too. Maybe it's okay to eat in the spring and not in the fall or things like that too. So for poisonous plants wise, I guess we haven't really run into that. More of fencing headaches is probably the biggest thing. Like if you have to go around some obstructions that are pretty difficult to fence, for instance, we had this spillway this summer that was a headache, to say the least. And we set up all the fence, and it got probably an inch and a half of rain in 30 minutes. And it went from no water in it to whitewater rapids, mm-hmm. where you couldn't, mm-hmm. you wouldn't even dare to step in it because you would have been in one of the three lakes in Madison mm-hmm. in five minutes. Other sites we've turned down are, are very, very small sites. Like if it's less than a quarter acre, it's just not worth our time to, to split our herd of 40-ish into a smaller herd. It, it, we'd, we'd be moving goats 
by the hours if we did super small sites or a site that's um, maybe strictly grasses. They don't prefer that. That's just not effective. We would we would recommend uh, either mowing or, or burning something grassy and a site like that, I guess. The goats prefer leaves to grassy stems. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we've turned down jobs that are just not a good fit that way. Yeah. yeah. If the landowner can save money by mowing it versus having the goats out there, even though the goats would eat the grass, but it would just be a lot longer because there's a lot higher volume of forage with grasses and forbs versus tree leaves. Or possibly a site we would turn down too is if the buckthorn is just too large and too tall that the goats can't even reach it and do any good. There's If there's too shaded in the understory, there's nothing growing there. If, if it's just, there's nothing for the goats to eat there. It may look green to us, but yeah. if they can't reach it, it's it's obviously not going to be effective. Yeah. Too big for teamwork, huh? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's the saw log buckthorn that <laughs> exactly. you guys have down south. So sometimes I think landowners might have questions about, and even foresters might have questions about maybe those uh, impacts of, uh, or maybe unintended impacts of goats on a site. So uh, do you guys ever see any issues with uh, uh, soil compaction or soil disturbance with goats? I'd say goats are going to be very, very light on the soil and, and leave less of an impact than maybe some of the larger grazing animals that were historically used to seeing um, moving through the woodlots with a smaller cloven hoof, you know, that's, it's less ground pressure um, and anything they leave behind their manure and stuff, they're helping incorporate with that cloven hoof back into the soils and any seeds or um, any ways to spread seed like that, they're, they're ruminants. So their rumens take care of any seeds that are in their system and they're constantly regurgitating and regrinding them up uh, with their teeth. So they've done studies and seeds just aren't viable after moving through a goat's hmm. uh, digestive tract. Brooke, something you said really, I have a lot of questions about, and that's just kind of that integrated approach to some of this invasive species management you mentioned on your property where you used the goats and, and then you, that allowed access. You came in with cutting and herbicides. And so I guess I just have questions like, what is that process look like if, if you're going to combine tools out of the toolbox. We often, we know that, you know, this stuff sprouts back and it's a process to get rid of it and control it. I guess, can you say some more about that and, and sure. what, what landowners typically would do? Absolutely. Yeah, I have, I guess I have the advantage with my, my real job in forest management to know what's out there for tools. So I've basically thrown everything at ours. Uh, like I said, we started with grazing uh, went in with, I went in with a brush saw, chainsaws, did some herbiciding. I've done hand pulling. Um, I've done prescribed burning too in the fall has been very effective on the smaller re-sprouts. Um, I've been at this, well, like I said, we, we had our first goats in 2012. So I'm working on a decade now of, of kind of managing. And now we're sort of in the maintenance mode where we're, um, getting a lot of seed source at this point. It's not necessarily re-sprouts. So I guess there's there's a lot of numbers floating around of how long buckthorn seed can stay viable in the soil. But um, I guess a classic example, it's at least 10 years on my property that we're getting seed source still back. So um, right now we're just using them as maintenance. So late spring, might've been even mid-summer by the time we got goats on my own property. It's kind of a luxury to get the goats working on 
on our properties now, um, as opposed to having on client on clients' properties. But yeah, so it's just I'm using all the tools that I can, I guess. And now I'm to the point where we've created some gaps and I am planting seedlings. And so I'm having to protect those seedlings with tree tubes. I've learned I need more than one tree stake to keep the seedlings safe from the goats. I think I woke up the first morning after having the goats in the pen this summer and probably a third of my tree tubes were tipped over and I was a little uh, grouchy with the goats. So um, I'm to the point where my, you know, infestation is moved to where I'm moving to the next step and kind of reforesting and, and making, creating pockets where it wasn't, you know, trees weren't regenerating naturally in the, the habitat it, it was in. So I'm more, I'm in maintenance mode now and replanting and then yeah, protecting the good stuff. So the goats are kind of, as you said, one of the tools you would use in that whole process and, and maybe they fit into some parts of that process better. I was thinking about your example with the big buckthorn, like we've been on sites where we've gone in and we've cut or treated those. And then that seed bank blows up because you have a lot of sunlight. And so maybe in that case, you know, after you did that treatment, that's where the goats might come in or more be more useful. Yep. They came in in that that second flush after you get the big woody stuff down. Then, um, yeah, they're very effective in that that bushy part. And that's one of our big things. And one of our bigger clients um, in the Madison area is getting that second flush. They're coming in with their crews after we're grazing in wintertime, cutting. And then the next spring, we're coming back to those same sites and hitting them again twice in the growing season. So grazing really is this, this is really seasonally dependent then. So like this wouldn't be a winter thing. This would be like a growing season thing. Correct. Usually about mid-May, the goats are out on jobs until we shoot for about October 1st is about the time we'll be out till, but this year we're a little mid-September. Just depends on when stuff starts to die, you know, and lose its leaves for the fall because you're really not gaining anything by having them eat the, you know, the trees that are losing the leaves because they're frosted. So it varies, but usually October 1st, mid-May to October 1st is pretty good time frame, I would say. I, I like that idea. And Greg, you were kind of mentioning, you know, kind of that integration of tools. This is almost like a division of labor too. Like sometimes that's the worst time to be in there trying to treat things is during the growing season when you have that. So it, it offers maybe some opportunity for us to focus on when, if you're using goats, you can focus on those other times of the year for the, the complementary things to it. Are there any um, things you have to watch out for if a landowner was say using herbicides to control plus then the goats? I mean, is there some separation there or timing you have to be aware of? Uh, whatever the label of the herbicide says, you know, usually they have a restriction if it's 30 days or however many days the label says you can't graze is usually what we go by. And back to the timing, we, yeah, so we have our goats back home, usually beginning of October, but we've had some pretty good luck in the winter with buckthorn management, like in the winter pen where the hay feeder is, they'll chew on the bark during the winter and it'll actually top kill it during the winter. Just we're not going to go set up fence for other people during that time because it's freezing cold and the ground's froze. But we've had some pretty decent luck with our winter pens and buckthorn management. Brooke and Greg, 
it's really interesting talking about these sites um, that you're putting goats in. I know in my little experience with goats, it's been landowners and actually state property where we've been using them for, say, woodland restoration or uh, savanna type of stuff. Do you use your goats in those types of situations? We've probably been more so in the woodland setting than the savanna type. Just there's a lot a lot more forage in the savanna setting. It's just probably not as beneficial to use the goats out there unless you probably could do it where they would graze all the tree species and then pull them out before they get to the grass and stuff like that. So there's probably some good timing there where if you were to keep it right when they defoliate all the unwanted species, you could pull them out. Otherwise, it's not probably worth it to have the goats graze all the grasses and stuff down. Yeah, it's kind of like that grass situation you you mentioned earlier. It's maybe not the best fit, but yeah, definitely I could see the woodland setting where, uh, where you're dealing more with the browse, yeah. I was just going to say usually uh, smaller wood woodlots uh, are more conducive to goat grazing to kind of only being able to bite off what you can chew type of thing. When I get to, you know, we're usually not grazing on hundred acre sites, I guess. It's usually the smaller, smaller woodlots that we're working with. How hard is it to move that? Like when you're working in these woodlots and doing things, how hard is it to move the fencing? You know, it sounds like, oh, it's easy. Just put a fence up. But some of the woods I've seen where I would think they'd be goat worthy, it'd be like, man, you'd have be a real struggle to get that stuff through. Uh, so we have a brush saw and we usually make a path that's two to three feet wide or we go off existing trails. But for Brooke and I, we're pretty pretty fast at setting up fence now. Just, you know, over the years of doing it, you kind of get better at it. We can set up a couple acres in an hour, I would say, oh. if conditions are right. And if we get Brooke's daughters to help, they'll bring <laughs> fence to us so we can just keep setting it up. Oh. But yeah, there's definitely some spots that are quite frustrating to pull the fence through because you get tangled on all the little stops on the ground or the buckthorn hanging over the trail. Is this like an electric uh, tape type of fence? Uh, no, it's um, electric netting is what it's called. Mm. So if you see like the white netting, you'll see sheep, sheep people have it. You know, if you're driving around the countryside, it's just a white 12 strand, 12 horizontal strands. And then you have the vertical stays that hold it up. But yeah, it's just electric netting, essentially. So it's probably what, like a grid, like how many inches by what, how many inches uh, 12 grid? by, I don't know what the height is. It varies from, it's like four or five inches, I would say. So, yeah, like four, four by 12 grid. Yeah, netting is the best description, I guess. And then there's fiberglass vertical poles every, what, 14 feet? Uh, 12 and a half. 12 and a half feet or so. So those are worked right into the, to the lengths of fence. So it's, you're the numbers guy. How many, how many, how long is it's it? It's 164 section? feet is the fence. So there's like 14 poles and they roll up really nice. So um, as long as you roll them up properly, you can deploy them pretty quickly. And all the horizontal strands are electrified, except for the one that touches the ground. There's a black string on the ground that is not electrified. Yeah. For the remote sites, we're using a, a deep cycle marine battery to energize the fence. Okay. And when we have locations um, and the luxury of actual, you know, an outlet to use, then we'll, we'll use actual real power, I guess. But yeah. most of the time we're using those marine batteries. We just, they're just 
isolated sites, you know, woodlot, you don't have a extension for right. long enough a lot of times. Yeah. And the, and the biggest thing is to have a hot fence. Um, the goats will respect it and they won't really, I shouldn't say they won't get out, but less likely to get out if the fence is hot. Yeah. We've ran solar fencers, but they just don't have, I don't know, maybe we haven't experimented enough with it, but they haven't been able to do what we need. So we just go with the standard energizer with the battery and we just swap it out every time we move the goats. So if that's a week or so, the battery will last that long. Is there a size then, Brooke, you mentioned you're mainly looking at maybe smaller parcels, but is there a size where it's just too big to really manage uh, the goats on? I think it's what what you're willing to put in after, you know, I think the average landowner is probably has has some limitations to what they're they're doing. Um, most most of our clients are using that combination of the tools. So if they're simply using goats, then maybe size doesn't matter. If if they've got the the financial resources, you know, we'd be willing to do it. It just seems we're more focused on, you know, I'd say what's our biggest site probably 15 11 12 11 or 12 acres is the largest sites we've been working on. And and like Greg said, we don't necessarily have that all fenced off at the same time, but you can do you can do more with smaller acreages as we all know, I guess. But if you're using goats as the only tool, then then maybe there there aren't as many size limitations. You can go bigger. Yeah. I don't know. The great yeah, you always no, that makes total sense. I mean, you you always want landowner to bite off a chunk that they can get done and see success on, right? And so you and if and if they're following up with follow-up tools, you want them to be able to accomplish those things. So yeah, that makes total sense to me. So I'm curious too. So I think a lot of foresters are going to be really like, hey, let's let's think about this. So what would be an what like a, and just from your kind of experience and and again, ballparks, what would what would this cost for like say in your experience for a on an acre basis or something like that for a landowner to consider or for a forester to consider goats? I would say looking at a parcel, we try to make sure that most of the targeted species, buckthorn or honeysuckle, are below the six to seven foot tall mark so they can reach the top. I would say that's probably a general rule for looking at that. Cost-wise, can't really give you a, a good answer because we charge per day. Okay. It seems to be the most fair versus charging per acre, just for the fact that not every site is the same. Some are way thicker than others. So say Brad has an acre and Greg has an acre, while Brad's is eight times as thick, I'm not going to charge him the same price as I'm going to charge Greg because it's it's not the same. Like Greg's acre might take two days to graze where Brad's might take, you know, a week. So we just charge on a per day basis. So it varies. It could be a couple hundred bucks per acre to maybe, you know, a few hundred bucks or even closer to a thousand. It just depends on how thick, how much labor it takes to set up the fence, you know, travel distance, all that stuff factors in. I like that analogy. Brad's acre is going to be a lot messier than mine. That's, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just telling you, Brad. Well, well, we do have a Felix and Oscar kind of thing. So I would expect mine to be a little messier than yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and maybe an, another point on that. So I, so I granted these things are going to be very variable. 
Is there a distance like you guys can go so far with your goats, but beyond that point, you really can't. And, and that may affect like uh, availability as well for maybe some people. Yeah, we don't like to go any further than an hour away from our home base here. Um, it's just not prudent. Um, if you happen to have an escapee or an injured goat or something, it's just not not okay to be traveling more than 45 minutes to an hour to go and, and remedy the problem. Um, and just like I, like we talked about before too, balancing our our home lives with with this business as well. We try to stick with one hour max drive time. Yeah, and when we first started, we would drive two hours to have a job just to kind of get our feet wet on, you know, doing stuff. But now that we've gotten a little bigger, we've toned her down to an hour or less. It just And we have it set up that the clients check the fencing every day and make sure the goats have water. So, I mean, it's nice for that, but it's still, if we have an issue, like Brooke said, we need to be there. Like if you're crawling in the bed at 930 and they call you and say all the goats are out, well, you know, driving a half hour versus two hours is a lot better. So Brooke and Greg, you guys have given us lots of kind of information to frame where we might be using this. Is there anything else you can think of that you would give for advice, particularly to foresters? Because that's who is listening here. If they're working with landowners who would like to consider goat grazing, what should they be thinking about and how should they go about it? I guess really figuring out their objectives. Do What tools or tool do they want to use? You know, depending on the size of the buckthorn, if it's 10, 12 foot tall, you're going to want to probably cut that down. Use herbicide if that's their choice or if they want to use goats, you know, but depends on the size of the, the brush or the tree species that they're trying to eliminate. You know, if it's under six to seven feet, you could use the goats. Even if the thing is, if they're a little taller than that and they can't reach the top, we've found that the buckthorn will just grow above that. So, you know, if they can't reach the top of that tree, it's not probably beneficial for them to use goats. I would say kind of keep an open mind too, because I guess historically grazing has been a very bad thing in the forestry world. This is limited. This is targeted grazing. This is temporary. You know, we're moving them in and out and moving the paddocks every several days to a week. We're not fencing them in for the whole year. And like I said, if they if they get bored or they run out of food, then they start girdling, which um, I think was part of the problem, you know, with with livestock in the woods month after month uh, could be the girdling or could be the, you know, brushing up against the desirable tree species and affecting form and quality, things like that. It's, this is, this is a temporary movement, temporary grazing. So it's definitely lighter on the land than historic grazing in the forestry world, I guess. It's fascinating to me, Brooke. We started, I think about the same time, but I remember the oldest plans I would find in files were basically like the foresters back in the day would say two things, don't burn this woods and don't graze it. And yeah. now it seems like we've turned the corner and we're like, well, we can use fire <laughs> yeah. as a tool and now we can use grazing. So we just have to be innovative. Yeah, yeah. we're opening the doors to some non-traditional methods of management and it's it's a good thing. I think a yep. little bit of everything can be used on almost all properties. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely a good tool for the toolbox to use goats. I, we always tell all the people that it's not a one time, they're going to fix every problem in one time. It's going to be over time, but if we keep on it, they're going to do what you want them to do. 
Yeah. yeah. We always try to have um, realistic expectations too, and, and be very transparent that one time of grazing is not going to be the magic wand and it's not going to eradicate all of the buckthorn on their property with, with one treatment. And I, I hope people would understand that, I guess, with any type of, of management, it's our invasive species are resilient and sometimes we have to hit them a couple different times and different directions and different assassins per se. There are a reason why they're invasive. They figured out <laughs> ways to survive in all sorts of conditions. Yeah. I mean, it's like so many things. You got to be persistent and realize it's a process to get this done. It's not like instant uh, results. Which is hard in today's world because that's yeah. how a lot of people live. Right. Yep. Yeah. And there's just so many things in forestry that we're, you know, trying to explain. This is going to take a while. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, Brooke and Greg, I just want to thank you. I, I really have a much better understanding, which is I started with nothing pretty much. So, um, but now I have a much better understanding, I think, of the situations where I might consider the use of goats, how I might integrate them with other methods and just assess the site and site conditions. So I really appreciate that. And I think foresters are going to walk away uh, with having that better understanding too. So really thank you for, for that. You know, I, I really appreciate people and willing to innovate and try something different. And Brooke, I know you and I have been around for a while. And I remember the old plans that you would read, they would say, don't burn this woods, don't graze this woods. And if you protected it, life was good. And and now we're seeing that whole thing change. And so you guys are, you're innovators. And so I really appreciate that. And I, I love what you guys are doing. Well, thank you for the opportunity to share our our part-time full-time job in the summer. Um, it's definitely a passion that we have and uh, we like to talk about it. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Great. Thanks for coming. Yep. Thanks a lot. Well, I don't know about you, Brad, but I learned a lot today. You know, I did too. All right. Get ready for this. In, in prepping for this episode, I found a whole a, a wealth of goat jokes. Oh, geez. So I, you're going to love these. Okay. You ready? Okay. <laughs> do I have to? Uh, you, you have to. What do you get when you, when you ask a goat to DJ at your party? I have no idea. A sick bleat. <laughs> get it? A sick bleat. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. Get, wait, wait, wait. Okay. Down, I got another one. Get down with this sick get bleat. Get down with this sick bleat. Okay. Oh, wait. Okay. Here's another one. Uh, what did the goat munching on the DVD say? I have no idea. Uh, I thought the book was better. <laughs> yeah, see, that's, that's gold. Uh, that's gold. <laughs> I tell you gold. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. Now, in any event, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or questions for the Dropbox, we didn't have anything in the Dropbox this week, right, Greg? Um, no, unfortunately no, so, not. But if you do, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. Take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Megan Espy, our editor-in-chief, Noah LeMade, IT master, theme music by Paul Frader, and of course, UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. <laughs> <laughs>